Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Max's Table, the State Hornet Food Podcast where we talk to all sorts of different guests about food and cooking and how they affect our lives and culture. I'm your host, Max Connor, and this is our very first episode of the semester. I realize it's kind of late. We hope to get a few more in before the end of the term, but it has been a jam-packed and difficult semester as I'm sure it has been for almost anyone listening to this. But today we have a very special guest. As the food writer for the Sacramento Bee, Benji Eagle joined me for a conversation all about the Sacramento food scene and how it was affected by the pandemic and what the future looks like for the farm to fork capital. Benji has been at the Bee since 2018, and we started by talking about how he landed the position as the Sac Bee's food writer in the first place. How long have you been the food writer now exclusively at the Sac Bee? It's been about three years or so. I started doing breaking news in October 2017, and then about six months later, I took over at Food Bee. Okay. Was food writing like on your radar at all at that point? Is that something as you were kind of coming up through journalism in school and other you know things you'd done? Was, it, was that a form of journalism you paid a lot of attention to, or was it sort of an opportunity that came up and you said, no, this sounds fun? It was more the latter, yeah. I kind of, you know... I started out covering sports and then I pivoted from there into uh, kind of politics, administration at the university I went to. And I kind of had this impression of myself as, you know, a serious journalist. And the impression I had of a lot of food writers is that they were writing less serious stuff. Um, And so when the Bee offered me the position as the food writer, I kind of said, you know, I'd love to, but I'd also really like to cover this Bee seriously and, you know, write about lawsuits and do investigations and all that kind of stuff. In addition to, you know, the, the more fun aspects of the beat as well. Right. Um, fortunately, they were uh, excited about that as well. So it's been great. And I think it's also, you know, taught me to soften my edges a bit as a journalist and not always be so hard charging, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What are some kind of investigative stories you've gotten to do in the Sacramento area? Yeah. So we did one over the summer on, um, Identity Coffees, and they had a number of former and current staff members who felt that their leader, their founder, um, was just a really terrible boss in a lot of ways that had to do with uh, sexism and unequal pay. And um, so we were able to, you know, dig into that and get their stories out there. And, um, you know, there's never been a lawsuit filed or anything like that, but they have some pretty compelling stories, I thought. Um, and that was one we were able to dig into a little bit as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that story. I remember, I particularly, I watched the the sort of short video series you did with the subjects of, of that story on the bee. When you start a new beat like this, and, you know, it's very, it's obviously very particular. So how did you really start to cultivate that beat? Were you already somewhat kind of plugged into the Sacramento food scene and going out to eat a lot, or was it sort of a whole new thing where you really had to start from square one? I think I was plugged in a little bit. I I joked to my friends that, you know, they only gave me the job because they saw me come in with last night's takeout from South or (laughs) crew or whatever, you know, or um, come in hungover enough that they knew I was going to the bars. Um, But um, no, there's definitely a steep learning curve when you pick up any beat. And, you know, you're talking to people as sources, you know, your sources who are just so much more knowledgeable about the beat than you are. You know, I had never worked in a restaurant myself. I didn't know what that was like. 
And it took about six months for me to really feel comfortable on the beat. I did a lot of reading, you know, past articles as well as just trying to like read books about what it's like to work in the industry. Uh, there's also the aspect that, you know, everyone you talk to is in the industry is thinking of it from, you know, a barback's point of view or a cook's point of view. And really you need to be writing for the public, for the diner's point of view. Um, so it really took me, I think, a little while to figure out what people wanted to read, what we should be giving them, and to feel more plugged in and make enough connections and have people I could go to reliably or who would feed me story ideas when I needed. I'm really curious how you go about writing about different cultures and just different types of food from countries maybe you've never really experienced or didn't eat a lot growing up. And, you know, you go to a really authentic Thai restaurant or dim sum place or... You know, how do you even sort of know what to order or to really kind of focus on? Obviously, you're not doing like intense restaurant reviews. You're doing feature stories and kind of highlighting places and what they're doing. But um, how do you find those places? And then how do you sort of write about them accurately and kind of do them justice? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question because it's something that I think a lot of people struggle with, how to accurately portray uh, different cultures and their food. Um, there's a lot you can find out just on the internet about different restaurants that people like, you know, I've left good Yelp reviews for. There's a lot of word of mouth too. When I started on the beat, I would ask chefs where they go to on their day off or, you know, what's a hidden gem that, you know, you think people should really pay attention to. Uh, so I, you know, found some places that way. You know, as, as for going out to eat, when I go to a restaurant that's really a specific cuisine, say, um, Indonesian or something if they have a dish that I can identify and I know it's not from that country uh, like chow mein say I'm not going to get that I'll look for something that really is kind of their regional cuisine and try and order that and um, you know if I have questions there's typically someone there I can talk to as well uh, as far as doing a full interview you know sometimes there's a language barrier but I found that most restaurants have someone who can help with that, or you can enlist the help of a community member to kind of help translate for you. Um, so it, it's something that, you know, has to be addressed, but overall there's some ways of dealing with those, uh, those goals. Yeah. yeah. How did you find that barbacoa ramen truck that you wrote about? Yeah, so there's, Kind of, I, I've, I subscribe to a lot of food newsletters uh, from different publications around the US and I guess in Europe a little bit. And I was seeing these stories out of like the Houston Chronicle and the LA Times about birria ramen. And the way that things often go is that trends will start in these bigger cities and then slowly make their way to Sacramento, you know, being a little bit of a smaller city. There was a, a big case of birria craze maybe like six or eight months ago. And we saw that really start in East Bay and LA and then slowly make its way to Sacramento as well. So I just Googled, you know, Birria Ramen Sacramento. And I wondered if that might be a thing. And I, I found one place that said they were doing it, but I don't think they were really operating at the time. Like they were maybe a pop-up that wasn't going on right now. But Barbacoa Ramen came up and I started looking into it and I thought it looked pretty appetizing and pretty interesting. And I was kind of drawn to the fact that they would take all this time to cook the barbacoa really well and then use instant ramen noodles in there. Uh, right. Because um, um, that, that, that was interesting to me. So um, 
we did the story and I talked to the owner the other day and he said that they've been sold out every day since, which is just great to hear um, because it's a tough economy out there for any restaurant owner or food truck owner at this point. It's interesting to be in a field of journalism where you really can make somebody's business by, you know, putting a, a giant magnifying glass on them um, that they just never could get otherwise spinning their wheels trying to advertise on Facebook and everywhere else. So, you know, that's great. What does that feel like? Was that something you considered when you got into the into that beat or is it just something that's been a, a nice byproduct or does it ever make you feel uncomfortable to have that kind of potential influence on someone's business? Well, I think one of the things that attracted me to journalism in the first place, and I think this is true for a lot of journalists, is the idea that a good journalist will um, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, that mm. you have a chance to really raise people up and you know shine a light on plight and hopefully not do it in an exploitative way, um, but to you know put their name out there and have people from the community want to help them and you know here's a GoFundMe that's going on. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of inequality in the U.S. today, and that's definitely true in the food industry as well. So it's a privilege to be able to do that and to be able to get people's stories out and to have people trust me with their stories as well, because oftentimes it's pretty sensitive. Um, yeah. But yeah, it feels pretty good to make a positive impact like that. And it's one of the reasons that I went into journalism. Right now, currently, you know, with Biden's economic plan, clear we already have a $15 minimum wage on its way in California. What's your sense on how things may change in Sacramento in particular for restaurants with minimum wage reaching $15 an hour? It's a raised operating cost. Um, I will say, you know, the way that they've rolled out minimum wage, I think it's over like five years and it goes up a dollar every year. So it's at least something that you can anticipate. You know, one of the hard things about the pandemic has been just rapidly changing regulations. Oh, you can do indoor dining. Now you can do only outdoor. Now you can't do outdoor. And this at least is something that restaurants can plan for a little bit. I do think, you know, after the pandemic, we're going to see a lot more places that are a lot more nimble. So smaller restaurants, more pop-ups, um, these big dinner halls, I think are going to, I mean, they've had trouble staying in business throughout COVID just because you pay rent per, per square foot. But, you know, these kind of small places, they'll have fewer employees. So, you know, that'll be less impactful for them than it would be a place that has a hundred employees, I guess. Um, so it'll be hard to know exactly, I mean, because restaurants will close and it'll be hard to know exactly when, whether that comes from the minimum wage increase or not. But um, I think, especially for people who aren't in tip positions or restaurants that don't pull their tips for, you know, the back of house or, you know, uh, you know, pe people who aren't servers or front of house people, um, you know, they really need more money that 12 or $13 an hour isn't a living wage for it at all. Yeah. Have you talked to many or done many stories on restaurants that have done sort of either pooled tip, really like significant pooled tips or, or who even have gone with the full shift of, look, we just, we pay 20 bucks an hour. We raised all our prices and yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, we've, we did an article, I think in maybe June of last, or of 2019 about it. Um, I know Alaro Brewing Company has a system set up like that. And they, they have a little charge for the back of house on their, their bill as well, like two or 3%. Uh, I think Magpie tried it and decided it wasn't working for them. And Hook and Ladder, I think 
pools between the front and back of house. Um, and it's interesting at hook and ladder, I think they, it worked great. There weren't issues within the staff uh, of, you know, servers feeling like their money was being taken away from them or anything. Um, the, the money stayed pretty good for everyone involved. I think, you know, the front of house didn't see a decrease in their wages or anything. Um, I think just as a whole, getting the dining public to accept the idea of a tipless bill that is significantly more expensive, um, or you know, that, that is more expensive, we'll say, than what they're used to is just a really hard pill to swallow. Um, especially once you start charging people kind of over the $20 price range for a lot of items that they're used to getting for 14 or 15 maybe. So um, I think it's, it's something of an education thing for the dining public. And then also, you know, there's a lot of servers that want to take home their tips and want to take home the full amount of that. So they're not really looking for the industry to change a whole lot too. And so, you know, we talked a little, you mentioned a little bit about COVID. If, I mean, you know, you can't predict the future, but what's your sense on what's going to happen, right? Indoor dining got opened for six weeks before November, and it looked like maybe people with a little bit of limited capacity can make that holiday nut that so many restaurants rely on at the end of the year. And then that just got completely wiped out. So just what's your sense of what's, what the fallout is going to become, you know, summer when vendor bills really start coming due and rent everything sort of goes back to normal and people just have a heap of bills if they didn't get another round of ppe protection yeah um i'll say to start you know i'm just a little surprised how few places have closed around the area since the start of the pandemic i mean there, there's been a significant number for sure but i really thought it would be like a lot worse um, we haven't seen that full fallout yet. I keep thinking it's around the corner and then it's not. So, you know, maybe take what I say with a grain of salt. I think the area to really watch is around downtown because neighborhood restaurants, people, I think, kind of gotten in the group doing takeout or taking it to a park or doing alfresco dining. Um, those downtown restaurants, they don't have a ton of state workers around them anymore. They don't have events at Golden One Center going on. Uh, the downtown hotels aren't as full as they once were because there's no conventions or anything like that. And then, you know, it's it's tougher to do alfresco dining on uh, 8th and K, for example, than it is for, you know, some part of East Sacramento. Um, so I think we've seen a lot fold already. And unfortunately, I think those are the ones that are going to be, that are going to have the toughest time staying open. Uh, I do think that eventually, you know, the pandemic will subside and there will be developments sort of north and downtown in the rail yards that'll make it an exciting place to come back to. And whether or not state workers come back downtown, someone will go into those buildings there. Maybe they'll, they, there's, there's gonna be increased housing as well down there. So I think it will eventually rebound, but the pandemic has just been a really tough blow for downtown restaurants. And it's really sad considering all the work that has gone into making downtown a, a better place to be over the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. As someone that worked down there, I can only imagine, and I mean the rents, particularly in Doco, I can only imagine what, I mean, straightforward, what are, what are you, we mentioned barbacoa ramen, what are some of the other spots you found recently that you would tell, you know, because I'm already having this problem, we order takeout, we have our takeout night once a week, we order from somewhere, and we still end up falling into, you know, it's like I'll go to South or, um, 
we've been to, you know, we've done crew once. Like, there's all these Sacramento spots that you, you see a lot in kind of the limited food media in Sacramento and everybody knows about. Um, and I live in Atomas, too, and there's not a ton of... There's some, you know, there's some haunts in Atomas. There's some decent places, but I'm always at a loss for what to get in Atomas as well. But what are just some some other hidden gems that you've learned about recently that are doing takeout? Sure. Um, you know, in Natomas, I like El Bramido, which is a, a back back when, you know, you could do indoor dining, they had a really nice kind of bar set up as well, but they just also have really good Mexican food. Um, it's a lot of, you know, taco burrito kind of plate, but plate, plate dishes, but um, I think they're really good and affordable and I'm a fan. Um, further out east, I guess, one I think that gets slept on a lot is Yui Marlu. Um, mm. I think people around the Fair Oaks area, which is where they are, kind of know this, but I really think they're one of the best sushi places around here. Um, and then, you know, I tell people if I had unlimited funds and a bottomless pit in my stomach, I would just walk around Stockton Boulevard around like 65th and try all the little Vietnamese um, and other a Asian restaurants around there. Um, Pegasus Bakery and Cafe has some really good little mooncakes that you can get there. Um, you know, I think a lot of people know this one now, but like Huang Long sandwiches, you know, that they, they have a few locations, but they have one down there that's particularly good. Um, Chow Bay Vietnamese cuisine is down there as well. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to find. And I'll say too, I mean, we haven't really announced this, but I think I can say it now. For about a year or so, Kate Washington, who's the bees dining critic and I have been working on a list kind of narrowing down what are really the best 40 or 50 restaurants in the Sacramento area and we've been dining out a lot uh, for that and I think that is going to publish in about a month now so we'll have a lot of options on there and there will be places that people know but I'm hopeful that we'll have some surprises for people as well and some new places to go to. That's awesome that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah I can't wait for that. There's there there is that that's the thing that hits me the hardest is just where all the places I don't know to go particularly you know Thai restaurants Chinese restaurants um, Taiwanese restaurants dim sum um, Korean there's just particularly there's so many you know Southeast Asian restaurants Sacramento has a big um, a pretty big Russian community as well are there any spot like Russian delis or sort of Russian spots that people that you found or someone has pointed you to that were really good. Yeah, a lot of that population, I believe, is out towards um, like Rancho Cordova, sort of. Um, there's a restaurant called the Firebird that's out in Carmichael uh, that they have, you know, some really great Russian dishes out there. I've also heard really good things about Elena's Kitchen and Catering, which is out in Rancho Cordova. Uh, and that's one that I'm looking forward to trying, but I haven't been to quite yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, one of my favorite things about covering food in Sacramento is just the incredible diversity that we have here. We really are, you know, one of the U.S.'s most diverse cities, and that's represented in the food scene if you look hard enough, I think. Um, so it's really fun to go around and try all these places. Yeah. And I'll say, too, that, you know, I was, I was shopping at 99 Ranch Market in Rancho Cordova last weekend. And it's a Korean grocery store, but they have just an incredible selection of Russian and European food and drink out there as well. So, you know, it's not a restaurant, but a lot of uh, packaged goods or, you know, bottles of soda or beer or whatever that you can take home. So, um, yeah, I, I picked up a few things there as well. Cool. 
What do you think, you know, I mean, we talked about the pandemic being pretty devastating, but I think one of the things that we saw, you know, back when the dot-com boom kind of bubble burst, there was a bit of an exodus from the Bay Area um, to Sacramento, and then we've kind of, or I should say really before that, as people were, you know, people were making money in the dot-com boom, and then people working in bookstores and restaurants and coffee shops struggled to live, and you've kind of seen the same thing with the tech boom there now, where you just, I mean, you, you can't, you can't be, you know, a 20-something working at a bookstore or coffee shop and live in San Francisco. So we've seen, I feel like we've seen in the food scene, seen some of that transfer to Sacramento. Um, do you think we'll see potentially once things really recover a boom in Sacramento of food or sort of new thing? Do you think it'll kind of continue? It was already on an upward trend. Um, what kind of food city do you think Sacramento could be, I guess, in 10 or 15 years? I hope we'll see a boom. Um, you know, one of the things that's really driven the last boom of the last 10 years or so is chefs who grew up in Sacramento and went and traveled the world a little bit and worked in a bunch of different kitchens. And then they came back home because, you know, they saw a city on the rise where they saw their home that they wanted to be in. I'm thinking of, you know, Brad Chechi at Canon. But, you know, th there's a lot of those. And I think that especially maybe chefs that were working in the Bay Area or at other cities, you know, they came home and um, they, and maybe we'll see the same thing after COVID and, you know, that we'll have this homegrown talent come back. I think it would be interesting to see if there's really talent that has no ties to the Sacramento region that just starts looking east from uh, the Bay Area and saying, this is a city that I want to go to. You know, this is a region that I think is the next food city um, because we do have a lot of things going for us, both, you know, in terms of the diversity of cuisine we have in this area, and then also just access to fresh meat and produce. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there's a, for a chef who wants to make their mark, I think Sacramento could be a good market. Yeah. Um, all right. So rapid fire, last four questions that I asked everybody, they're all personal food questions. Um, the first one is what's your, what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? Um, you know, honestly, McDonald's fries are pretty good. Uh, I know James Beard had a soft spot for him too. Uh, I just went on a road trip with a friend and he, you know, made me pull over to McDonald's a couple of times and, uh, as fast food fries go, I think they're up there with the best. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, what's the opposite end of the spectrum? What if, if money's no option, where are you going to eat or what, what dish are you going to order? What type of food are you going to go? you know, spend a ton of money on if you had it? Um, you know, pre-pandemic, it feels like a really good evening would be to go to Binchoyaki and just try a bunch of little little plates they have there and a bunch of the different infusions they have uh, their sake, or, and their sake and whatnot. Um, you know, I always enjoyed going there and, you know, it, you could rack up a pretty good bill pretty quickly, I think, but, you know, you'd have a lot of fun there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now during COVID, I mean, you can never go wrong with Canon. I really think that they do an exceptional mm. job over there. Um, and they, they have a lot of small plates as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, what's the thing you like to cook at home the most? Um, I do sort of like a stovetop paella kind of thing. I mean, it's not, you know, with a huge pan, it's just with kind of like a normal large frying pan. Um, but that's really fun to kind of experiment and put in different types of sausage or seafood or whatnot. I have also, 
I think this is a pandemic thing for a lot of people. I've, I've gotten really into pickling. So I think I've mm. pickled something like every night this week. Uh, <laughs> beets last night and daikon before that and bean sprouts before that. And um, So my parents live in Davis and I keep bringing jars to their house and they keep saying, we don't want them. And I say, I know, but I don't have fridge space. Um, so yeah, that's it, it's fun. And it's fun to have a project that you know takes a while to get to its final stage as well. You're just kind of waiting for it to mature you know get to the point where you'd want to eat it yeah, yeah. totally i've I'd, i've done some pickling myself during the pandemic i found a bread and butter pickle recipe i developed that i that i love and then i made some chow chow a couple of weeks ago which is like a southern whole mix of vegetables pickled that's amazing on sandwiches um <laughs> what is uh what's the thing that you're you ate growing up that you wish you could just sort of like go back in time and re-experience as a kid yeah. Um, so my grandparents immigrated to the U.S. from Hungary, and um, we don't have a whole lot of Hungarian ties at this point. But the food is definitely still, you know, part of our family tradition. So just growing up, I mean, my grandma's still around, thankfully, and we'll make these dishes. But growing up eating langos, which is a kind of fry bread that you rub cloves of garlic on, or um, Uborka salata, which is kind of like a pickled cucumber salad, or uh, goulash is the one that everyone knows, you know. Um, that to me is really like comfort food, and whenever I have it made by her, it's kind of, you know, it's that ratatouille moment of yeah. taking you back to your childhood. Um, right. So that definitely has a soft spot in my heart. I was really sad to see Cafe Marika close last year. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's going to do it for this episode of Max's Table. The article Benji referenced they were almost done with about the 50 best restaurants in Sacramento is now live on sacb.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes you can check out. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just go to statehornet.com. And be sure to check out our Monday, Wednesday, Friday State Hornet News podcast where you can get all your Sac State news in short three to five minute podcasts that are easy to listen to and entertaining. You can also find that wherever you get your podcasts or at statehornet.com. And also check out our investigative series we're putting together for the end of the semester, Unforgettable, the year 2020, where we are looking to our audience to tell their stories on various different topics about the historic year 2020 and how it has shaped and affected their lives. Be sure to look out for all our other podcast content at statehornet.com. And until next time, eat something you love with someone you love.